There is a TV commercial running these days that makes the case that appearing on the game show Jeopardy is a life-changing experience. I won a couple of games on Jeopardy years ago, and it was definitely a life-changing experience, at least in so much as it's given me a great opener at cocktail parties for the last 24 years. Ryan Vickers hasn't made it to Jeopardy, but it would be hard to contend he hasn't had some life-changing experiences, considering that he has been on roughly a dozen game shows. And today, he helps people with their own possibly life-changing experiences. Today on the show, we'll talk with Ryan Vickers about a life of experiences. But before that, a new book tells some overlooked or often forgotten stories of black pioneers in the Adirondacks. We'll talk with author Amy Godine when Northwards comes your way next from the studios of North Country Public Radio. This is Northwards, the monthly interview show coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. I grew up in a pretty diverse place. If you look at my high school yearbooks from the 80s, probably 40% of the kids are white, maybe a third are black, and there were lots of Asian American and Hispanic students as well. The experience of being around so many people from so many backgrounds informed a lot of my worldview. So it was a bit of a change when I went to college in rural Iowa. Not a very diverse place then, not a very diverse place now. And you couldn't help but wonder how attitudes towards race among many people there were formed without any day-to-day exposure to people of diverse backgrounds. You drive around today in the North Country, and it's kind of the same story here as well. Even before it starts snowing, this is an overwhelmingly white place. There are several organizations that are trying to make our region more hospitable for people of diverse backgrounds. And as we learn in a new book by writer Amy Godine, those efforts have actually been going on here for more than 150 years. Godine, who lives in Saratoga Springs, joins us now to talk about the book called The Black Woods, Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier. It is great to talk with you. Oh, delighted. Thanks for having me. You have been working on issues of race and racism and migration patterns among black people in the Adirondacks for a long time. Um, How do you see this book fitting into the context of your life's work? It's really a wider context than that. It was uh, interest from the beginning when I first came to the region in, in invisible communities. And I started at that point with more of an emphasis on wider ranging ethnic enclaves and communities in the Adirondack region. My particular interest in this story only happened, only really launched in the late 90s, 2000 aughts when I was solicited to curate an exhibition on Timbuktu for the social justice group, John Brown Lives of Westport, New York. And I was discouraging. I said, there's really not much story there. There's, you know, Reed Donaldson, he'll tell you it was a joke. Nobody came, nothing happened, nobody stayed. The story's all about John Brown. Martha Swan, the head of JBL, then and now said, give it a try. See what you think. I have a feeling you'll turn up something. And, you know, 20 years later, here we are with a tome on what I thought (laughs) 50-page pamphlet at best, if I could swell it that big. So, my my interest sort of shifted and and honed down from a wider stretch to a somewhat more narrow stretch, but now it will widen again, I think, that the book is completed. 
You said you imagined this as like a 50-page pamphlet. Did you feel yeah. like you went into it thinking that you you knew everything that you needed to know? Absolutely. I thought, oh man, this is a this is a no-brainer. This is a story of a of an idea that completely failed and I can do this in no time. And the more we dug, um the more we discovered the con- the, the the incredible um role that the Black abolitionist activist agents played in soliciting the 3,000 grantees who accepted land, the several families that did come up, in fact, the wider extent of the territory than what I envisioned. I thought it was just the tiny community of settlers around John Brown's home in North Elba, but in fact, it extended up into Franklin County, into the town of Franklin, and up to Loon Lake, and there were grantees who were farming in um, outside E-Town in New Russia. It's a wider territory than had ever been explored, mostly because town, town historians who looked at this were looking at their own turf and not looking beyond it and not maybe weaving the wider tapestry that needed to be um, developed for this story. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I think, you know, you, you've mentioned John Brown a couple of times. And I, I think if you asked most people if they knew anything about black pioneers in this region, they might know something about John Brown and his role in advancing black opportunity. But the the name they'd know less about is a guy that's really kind of at the center of your book or near the center of your book. Um, what should people know about Garrett Smith? Oh, he was a remarkable guy. And he's the reason that um, John Brown came here. He is the one who developed a plan to settle 3,000 Black New Yorkers in the Adirondacks. It was that plan and the promise of helping out the settlers on their land that the Black sheep farmer and broker and merchant John Brown came to the Adirondacks in the first place with Garrett Smith's blessing. Smith was a radical abolitionist of enormous land wealth who lived in Peterborough, New York, and he um, met John Brown who came to him and said, I want to help. Can I help? And Smith gave him his blessing. So Smith launches um, Brown, and Brown is enticed by the presence of the settlers who are here. Brown comes here because they're here. He doesn't lead the settlement, as so many historians have suggested. He comes in response to a, a small settlement that's already in place. You know, one of the things that seems most intriguing is trying to understand Smith's motivations, uh, because there was a there's clearly an electoral motivation. Um, there is, and, and some and some moral underpinnings. But this is also a guy who later on uh, bailed out Jefferson Davis. Yeah, I think his deepest motivations were um, faith based. He was an extremely devout. Christian who believed in the golden rule as the absolute basis of all religious action and and tried to implement it in every sphere of his life. He thought in that simple term, do as uh, unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this dictated his every act of charity. And that explains what he did for Davis. It was an act of conciliation, an act of exampling charity and good faith that he hoped would inspire the South, encouraged by his example to show greater kindness to the new emancipated Black people of the South. Didn't work out that way, but that, I think, was his motive. So I take a more charitable view of him in that than some historians have. I also don't think he was strictly cynical in his giving away land. He never once says to his grantees in any document that I've found 
vote my way or the highway, vote for my anti-slavery party or you won't get land. And and he would have liked to have done that, but he did not do that because it would have um, violated the kind of charity he was trying to exemplify with this gift. So I give him more of a break on that score than some folks have. Well, and, and we talk about voting, um, and we haven't actually in this uh, conversation mentioned that uh, you know one of the one of the keys to to having land at the time was a requirement that that people had to own land valued at at least two hundred fifty dollars to be able to vote in the state of New York. That's right. That's right. Black people um, were subjected to that racialized voting requirement in eighteen twenty one. Um, at the first constitutional convention, which embraces it. And with the exception of several northern and central New York counties, including several in northern New York in the Adirondack region. And um, this effectively disenfranchises an entire black um, electorate that some people, especially in the city, were worried would damage um, pro-slavery business interests in the city. Uh, that's one reason why the opposition to it was so fervently um, pursued by urban New Yorkers. And it isn't reversed or lifted, rather, until 1870 when the feds insist on absolute equality before the law for black voters. That's the first time it takes that long. So it's in play a long time in New York State. Um, and New York State does not willingly go for this. It's really imposed on the New York Assembly by the feds, and then later New York embraces it. This would be surprising to a lot of people who think of, of you know, everything north of the Mason-Dixon line as being pretty egalitarian towards former slaves and, and free blacks. I think you're right. I think that's one of the revelations of the story, that this was really a story, I won't say it wasn't about slavery, because the links between the beneficiaries who were free black New Yorkers when they got their land and slavery, which was in their own past experience. Many of them were born slaves. Many of them were self-emancipated people. Many of them were parented by free slaves. It was so tight, it's it's virtually porous. And so historians who have claimed, as some have, this was strictly for free black New Yorkers. Slavery had nothing to do with it. Missed the boat in this respect. And those who have insisted and Many have. This was just for runaways. This was for fugitives also missed the boat. Uh, there was intercourse between those two worlds, and it was evident in every family I looked at. And along those lines, I mean, obviously, every family and every individual had their own reasons and stories and motivations for for being a part of, uh, of this resettlement, if you will. Um, but can you share a little bit about why at least some of the people you write about came to try their hand at farming and, and living in the Adirondacks? I think first and foremost, they wanted a free farm. This was a crack at an opportunity to become... Um, self-providing and self-sustaining and not have to rely on bosses and white bosses for the most part. Help was not reliable and they wanted to have their own way. I'm sure many as well were moved by the opportunity to vote once their property achieved the value that was required by the law. None of these pieces of property were worth $250 at first glance. They all had to be worked and brought up to that value over time. But what, what I did find is in the records of um, local voting records in the Adirondacks, black grantees 
and the fellow travelers who join them are voting and early on with their white neighbors. So clearly on a very small scale, a tiny scale, Garrett Smith's plan did have some happy repercussions for these migrants to the region. Maybe too, they were looking for a way to live in interracial communities safely and um, warmly. And many of them found that. That's one surprise of the research too, how many instances there were alongside well-known instances of racism on the frontier. There were lesser known instances of interracial collaboration and community building and um, town service. And these weren't groundbreaking moves. Nobody became a mayor, nobody became a county supervisor, but people were working together on fire squads, on cemetery committees, on road work, on um, election day work. I mean, there was considerable interest in bettering the community in everyone we looked at. How did you go about finding the historical record for those those kind of smaller smaller changes? Um, you know, it's sort of one thing to imagine you know great newspaper articles from from uh, publications of the time, but but what was the historical record like for some of these families? The best stories came from archival sources that aren't digitized and weren't well known. Um, looking at discrete pension records, military pension records after the Civil War for sons of grantees and grantees who served, mostly in the color troops, not always, um, revealed considerable evidence in affidavits from white neighbors of deep knowledge of each other's families and, and help that they were extending to each other. And I found the same thing in tax records at the New York State Archives, um, which hadn't, as far as I could tell, been looked at, of families which had lost their land to tax sales, they hadn't kept up with their taxes, in order to redeem them from sale or to get them back without punishment, they needed proof that they'd improved their land. And they got those proofs from neighbors uh, who said, yeah, we know John Thomas, to give an example. He's fixed up his land this way. We know exactly what he plants on it. We know his family. We know how long he's been there. And all of this evidenced very close relations between neighbors and none of that had been explored before. So that was pretty thrilling for me. Lots of stuff like that. Many, many archives, obscure and well-known, helped out. This must have been gratifying to, to find these little gems. It was, it was thrilling. I mean, there were some, there were some fantastic revelations in um, legal records in county archives um, of court cases involving um, grantees or their children who were embroiled in disputes with um, one guy lost, well, he spent two months in prison in E-Town, the county seat, because he owed money for a horse he'd bought from a white guy up in um, a town I forget, and it died as soon as he got it home. And he talked to his neighbors, also veterans like himself, who said, you don't know him a dime. This is outrageous. He swindled you and he knew it all along. This horse was never fit to be sold. So he didn't pay up and the sheriff turns up, arrests him, takes him back to the county jail. He's sentenced to three months. He's in his, I think, 50s, 60s at the time. And he's alone with his wife on their farm. She's an emancipated slave he met in the South when he was in the service. So this must have been an incredible shock for her. It was harvest time when he goes into jail. The only way he gets out early is when um, a white judge in Elizabethtown 
learns of this case and writes the attorney for the other fellow and says, this is an outrage. There was no, this, this, this guy has to be released at once. There was no justice in this case at all. He didn't get a hearing. He didn't get a lawyer. He, you didn't serve him notice. And he does get released, but he doesn't get compensation for his months in jail. So full justice is not achieved. But what's exciting there is to discover it's because of this judge's knowledge of the black community and his work on behalf of grantees that he takes an interest in this case and wants to see the right thing happens. What's demoralizing is if it weren't for that chance connection, maybe nothing would have happened at all. That's the kind of thing that would turn up in these court records out of the blue and completely change the shape of my understanding of someone's biography. I just have to say this, he becomes a town constable for St. Armand. So it's quite a swing back and forth in New York. <laughs> Really, I was just going to say there, there's an irony, of course, that the thing that got you first interested in and in looking at uh, this era was uh, when you know Martha Swan asked you to do this on behalf of of John Brown Lives, and at the same time, as much as John Brown is in this book, I gather he is very deliberately not at the center of the book. He's decentered from the story, though we have to thank him for knowing anything about it, because if it weren't for his presence, as really brief as it is in residency at North Elba, historians would have taken, I think, very little notice of this at all. So because he's there, they give it some notice. The, the downside of that is his story becomes valorized and at the expense of his Black neighbors who don't go with him to Harper's Ferry, who don't go west, who don't, who choose not to join his band. They make another choice. They elect to stay in their new communities and to work their farms and to fight racism on that front. It's a valid choice and it's their choice. And it's a choice that when war is declared and their sons join, um, that's another choice that is made, but they don't sign on with John Brown. He just didn't belong at the center of this story. Frankly, he wasn't on the ground enough to be a central character. His his wife was, some of his kids were around, but he was he was not, yeah. So why do you think this history ought to matter to us today? What do we get from understanding it and, and how do you think it shapes our, our kind of broader community up here in the North Country? Well, for one thing, it diversifies our understanding of the Adirondack landscape. It's, it, it returns to it a history which shows it to be much more racially diverse than we ever knew it to be. And um, it also inflected Adirondack history. It's used on both sides by historians, both hoping to keep the Adirondacks pure for white people and other who point to this as an example of black incapacity. Look, they got land, it was free land, they came up, they don't stay. What do we make of that? Well, they don't belong here. They didn't have the right stuff. They didn't have what it takes. So. That's a that's a use of the um, story that's very common in Adirondack history. And what we learned is that a number of families do stay on the ground for much longer than historians have given them credit for. And they do pretty well and they meld with their communities and they um, are buried in cemeteries all over the region. So there are ways to counter that. And on the good side, it, it's complicated our understanding of Adirondack social history in a very happy way and made it less monolithic, less all white for one thing, more politically complex, and more a place we need to think about in terms of diasporic history and people 
moving on than property ownership all the time. This has provoked a storm of interest in the Adirondacks today, and I'm very happy about that. There's a lot of digging into geneal genealogy, a lot of community um, efforts to plumb this stuff. There are artistic um, responses to this in, in fiction and in um, dance and in creative programming at, at churches and in historic centers. It's just nifty. It's wonderful to watch. Yeah. Well, so for someone who went into this thinking you'd have a pamphlet or maybe 50 pages to see a book that is this size and uh, and this heft uh, must be uh, something of a delightful surprise to you. It's it's happy. It's great. I'm thrilled about it. And I'm glad that a quarter to a half an inch of what you held up there are the end notes. So you should let people know it's not quite as long as it looks. It jumped out at me. There's some really remarkable pictures that you were able to use in this book. And the thing that struck me is what must have been going through the minds of people when they sat for these photos at the time that they sat for these photos. They don't look thrilled with things. They look resigned and tired and um, not ready to deliver all their feeling to the photographer. Not a little bit withholding, cautious, I would say. And I wondered what you're asking, and I have no answer except to say some things came true and worked out, and I'm sure other expectations were dashed. You know, Jim Crow is a reality all over the North in its own subtle, coded way, and the upward mobility that the children of the grantees experienced was not what their parents found on the frontier. It was much easier to get on with things when you were a pioneer and you had neighbors helping neighbors on a rough, needy frontier that compelled mutual collaboration. Later on, when the economy shifts to a service economy and industrial um, uses for the frontier and um, market-oriented farming, big farms start to consolidate out of the little scratch farms that the pioneers had started. It's not so easy for a poor farmer in this country, white or black. It's not race-driven. The catastrophe is everybody, and the outflow of poor people from the Adirondacks is fantastic. I think that's a long way from your question. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, but the but the but the image of them as tired and resigned is one that uh, I, I think I thought those same uh, those same words. So yeah. it's 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 gratifying to hear you say it as well. No, it was tough finding evidence that at all. There were no pictures in the book, and are none of black farms, of barns, of families at work on their farms when they were farming. Those are missing in action. These were really poor people who didn't have the means to hire a photographer to take a picture um, until they were well along and off the farm in most cases. So that was a disappointment, but not a surprise. So we made do with other sources and it's worked out. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's worked out uh, really remarkably. Um, I'm I'm glad I had a chance to read it, and Amy Godine, I'm I'm glad I had a chance to chat with you about it. I'm delighted. Thanks so much for your attention. Amy Godine's new book is called *The Black Woods: Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier*, and it is just out. So look for it. Amy and I will talk more about the book and invite your questions in the next event in an online series organized by the Adirondack Experience called *In the Adirondack Library*. It's on the evening of Monday, November 6th, and you can find a link to more at ncpr.org northwards. A quick break now, and then a major shifting of gears as we meet Ryan Vickers, Cornwall native and game show contestant extraordinaire. 
This is Northwards from NCPR. NCPR's Northwards is supported by Renew Architecture and Design, helping people design custom places to live and work throughout NCPR's listening region, renewarchitecture.com, and by Claxton Hepburn Medical Center, Ogdensburg, and its surgical services team performing robotic, general, and minimally invasive procedures, claxtonhepburn.org. You can catch up on past episodes of Northwards, subscribe to our podcast, and get in touch with us all in one place. Just visit ncpr.org northwards. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio. More of Northwards now. I'm Mitch Tyke. One of my claims to fame besides hosting a podcast with literally dozens of fans is my appearance on Jeopardy. I should say my appearance is because way back in the fall of 1999, I was a two-day Jeopardy champion. Jeopardy. Now entering the studio are today's contestants. A public radio news reporter from Flagstaff, Arizona, Mitch Tyke. A student from Las Cruces, New Mexico. It was, alas, before they doubled the prize money, and I ended up losing my third game on a question about the Shroud of Turin. So instead of winning enough money to retire at age 30, I won enough money to put a down payment on a new car, which my neighbor backed into the day after I brought it home. Still, it was a really cool experience that I've gotten to dazzle people with over the years. But when it comes to dazzling people with game show exploits, Ryan Vickers has a lot of experiences to choose from. If you have watched practically any game show from the last 15 years, the chances are you might have watched this native of the Cornwall area. In fact, Ryan Vickers, can you share a laundry list of your game show appearances for us? Right. Uh, So we go back. The start was in 1997 on Wheel of Fortune here in the U.S. Uh, Then I am at 2006 Inside the Box in Canada, 2007 Brain Battle in Canada, 2009 Countdown in the U.K., 2012 Ice Cold Cash in Canada, 2013 Motus in France, 2015 The Price is Right in the U.S., then we're at 2017, Let's Make a Deal in the U.S., and 2018, pardon me, 2019, a show called Au Suivant, which is based out of Quebec. And that's eight, and I've forgotten one, and that sounds horrible. But there's <laughs> one more that my brain is hurting on right now. So. It'll pop up in the middle of the it conversation, Probably, I'm yes, sure. exactly. So, For people who watch game shows, you know, you often see that, that card that shows up, that electronic card, where they say, you know, if you're going to be in Los Angeles and you'd like to be a contestant, yes. you know, uh, this is how to do it. Or, you know, in the case of uh, of Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy mm-hmm. and those, you know, you can you can audition online. And, it, you know, it seems like such a crapshoot. How, how did you get on the first one and, and how have you gotten on eight more since? <laughs> so Wheel of Fortune happened back in the old days when the Internet was in its infancy. We used to send things called postcards. <laughs> Which is how I got on Jeopardy. Exactly. And so I sent in 10 postcards, and I was living in um, Ingleside, just west of Cornwall, right near Upper Canada Village, if you've ever been there. Uh, I sent off 10 postcards, and four weeks later, I arrived home from school one day, and my mom had said, you're not going to believe this, but Wheel of Fortune is called. So we we traveled down to Toronto, the big the big smoke, I guess, <laughs> and uh, had to go through the process about an hour and a half, similar probably to something your Jeopardy edition, Mitch. And uh, about two weeks later... Sent a, sent a letter 
again, old school, um, <laughs> saying you're in the contestants pool and then you wait for up to a year and a half and there's no guarantee you're going to be pulled out of that pool. They always pull more people than they need. And then about six weeks later, uh, spring of 97, I got a call and we went to Los Angeles, mom and I, and, and taped. And, and you talk about getting on the shows. I've always told people that ask me for advice, be yourself plus about 10 to 15%. <laughs> because if you are super fake, those people are going to see through it. It's great to have enthusiasm. I get that 100%. But you still need to be yourself. Um, try to figure out what might set you a little unique. When I got on The Price is Right many moons ago, and it's like speed dating for game shows. Hi, what do you do? Where are you from? And I told them I was Ryan, where I was from. And I was a French teacher, and the. Um, Do you think that stood out right away? I think that helped that I wasn't from uh, the Los Angeles area. And the gentleman said, "Let's uh, let's talk about your French teacher business." And we and you want to have that uh, the idea that you engage them in a little bit of conversation. They've got to get through say two three hundred people in an hour, so you don't have all day. But he said to me, he said, "Well, maybe we'll give you a trip to Paris." And I said. <laughs> And I just didn't mean to put on anything. I said, that would be nice. <laughs> and 45 minutes later, Ryan Vickers come on down. So uh, I like to go and have fun. I tell people if you're trying to pay the mortgage, it's not that you can't, but you really should focus on having fun at the game first. And any prizes, I would hope, be secondary. If you're on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, it's still okay to tag for the million. But if you win 25000 that's still a great day out, I feel. <laughs> so go back to The Price is Right, because yeah. you were talking about the like the, the kind of speed dating yeah. concept here. And I, I think people don't realize this, that it's not random people that they're they're drawing out of a hat. That, that that's they, correct. They've actually kind of sussed you out to, to presumably see who's going to be the most fun to have on the show. And, and that's exactly it, that we went through, the time I was on in 2015, we did groups about 12 of us, then you sit in line and people are like, oh, Ryan, you did a great job. I said, well, I've been here before, it didn't work out. And you know, you hear stories of people going dozens of times and maybe getting picked or maybe never picked. And it's just a matter of having that enthusiasm. We went into the studio. I was on my own that day. I got sat, which I think is hysterical, by three people from Montreal because reasons. <laughs> and they're wonderful people, and uh, we've stayed in touch. And the one gentleman will keep reminding me how I did win the car because I didn't listen to him. So, je m'excuse, Martin, toujours. Um, but uh, I got in the studio, and they put dance music, music on. I thought, I don't want to give them any reason not to pick me. And I stood up and danced, and maybe I looked foolish i didn't care i was at the price is right like this is the stuff that dreams are made of right well, and how can you possibly look foolish on the price is right i i mean it's just par for the course but you have fun with it i truly believed that when my name was called i didn't hear it by the way that that place imagine the loudest concert but put it in a, a theater for 300 people it's deafening in there and they hold up a card with your name which you get to keep at the end which is a great oh, souvenir cool. it's framed at home <laughs> And it comes up, it said Ryan Vickers, and I thought I calmly stood up and walked down to contestant row. <laughs> Four months later when the show aired, I found that I was flailing, running down. I forgot to high-five the people in my in my row because they're right. You do sometimes black out in these things. Not in a bad way, but you're just hoping that your brain and your mouth and your legs and all parts of you are working the together. Parker's studio at CBS in Hollywood. It's the price is right. Ryan Vickers, come on down! 
Stephanie Derringer. Well, and, and that's got to be so much different than, than, you know, I don't know about all the other game shows that you've been on, but it has to be so much different because with Wheel of Fortune, you know you're going to be on yes. the show. And, and with, you know, all these other shows, you know, you they've, they've called you. So, you know, this mm-hmm. is the day that they are going to be taping my episode, whereas Agreed. you walk into the studio at The Price is Right and you want to, I mean, I, I've, I've not been on The Price is Right, but you would think you'd want to be able to remember everything, mm-hmm. but but the element of surprise has to be maybe the the underrated part of uh, of competing. It, it's here. and that's I could sit and watch just the first four contestants and prices right get called down all day because the happiness. And I've been I went to a taping a couple of years later. Obviously, not allowed to be on the show because enough time hadn't passed. I just the excitement of people jumping up. Uh, There's a Prices Right live stage show that tours around Canada in the U.S. and I think I've seen it eight times, and I've not been picked. That, for example, is random. Not the show itself, but the, but you 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 pay for your your tickets and whatnot. And the same thing, these people, this life goal realized, and and it's just it's a processing problem. I went home, stayed staying at my friends, and tried to write down everything that happened, and it took three four days to remember most of it. And still watching the show four months later. Oh yeah, that happened. So <laughs> it's it's very much um, what you say exactly true. Going to Wheel of Fortune, I knew that was there. That was going to be my day again. They bring extras in case someone falls ill or someone just doesn't work out that day for whatever reason. But Price Right, let's make a deal. Not only you don't know you're going to be on, you have to sit on it. And those were probably the most four months of excruciation <laughs> of my life. But I was able to basically fool everyone into watching the show without telling them I was going to be on the show. And that was half the fun for me. I had I had a good time and people were just, they know me well enough to know that I really am passionate for the genre of television and that, you know, it, but it's Price is Right. We stay home on our sick days. And, and you know, as we're recording this, Bob Barker has just passed away. And I thought, especially in the 90s, daytime game shows weren't a huge thing at that time, just game shows in general. And that was it was. I'm very much a eat my lunch at 11 in the morning because that's when Price is Right is on, right? So Let's go back to, to 97 when you went on Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. I, did that, like, turn something on in your mind that, like, this is something I want to do from here on out? A hundred percent. I basically remember watching game shows as a kid and being you know, a bit envious of people because I thought, oh, I don't live in the United States. This is harder to get these shows. And we had Canadian game shows, but even that, they were in Toronto and – we had one solitary year of a Canadian version of Supermarket Sweep. <laughs> and I was one year too young to be on the show, and I was just frustrated like you couldn't believe. And I actually got to meet the host years ago from another project I was working on. He said, Ryan, you're passionate about this. Why were you on the show? I said, I was so annoyed with my age at that time. I always thought I was born 10 years too late. Sail the Century, Scrabble, all those 80s game shows. But um, the joke around the house was then when I got on Wheel of Fortune, there was no more winning game show arguments for my parents. They're like, we get it. So, you know, as many I've been on, I've, there's tons of others. You know, I ended up doing a win Ben's Tides money tryout. They had a contest in Canada. I won one of the 30 edition spots over the phone. Got two out of 10 questions right. Fun fact, Mitch, barbecue sauce doesn't go at Eggs Benedict. That's what I learned that day. Mm. So, yeah, it's not a, not a good idea. So... It's just something I played Reach for the Top when I was a kid, which is basically our high school version of, of Quiz Bowl. And I thought, this is just something I want to do with my life. And seeing people getting on game shows and whether you win a lovely parting gift or a new house or a million dollars or you know a brand new car, <laughs> these people's lives are changed. And I wanted to be part of that fun. 
do you ever sit back and, and watch <laughs> these episodes again? I thought you were like, do you ever sit back, do you stop, Brian? <laughs> um, yes, I will. Um, a lot of times if people are sometimes it comes up pretty early in conversations. I don't try to bring it up, but it, it does naturally come up sometimes. I know <laughs> no, no one who knows me like, sure, Ryan, whatever. Yeah, I have fun doing that. And sometimes people are like, you were on The Prices Right? How'd you do? I was like, do you want to know or shall I give you the link? <laughs> and they're like, let's watch the link or give me a little summary. It's fun to watch. And even if it's little clips here and there, uh, people enjoy that. Wait, you can speak French? Yeah, that that's that's what I do. And and uh, it's good fun. I'll bring it up once in a while. And uh, we joked someone uh, sorry, made a gif of me flailing down the aisle and Price is Right. <laughs> like, this is my life in six seconds. So This is a weird question to ask, but I I'm feel sure, like— I, I, I'm sure I, it's not, but go ahead. Uh, so. Well, and I, it's probably not—I'm probably not the first person to ask this to you. So so I think about my experience on Jeopardy and really the yeah. only physical part By, by the way, well done on that because I've tried out multiple times for Jeopardy <laughs> and uh, never really hit the cut, but go on. Sorry. Yes, my bad luck was to, to do it before they doubled the prize money. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> do you get retroactive to that? Uh, no, sadly, no. Okay. I, I do not. <laughs> um, but uh, but the, only physical, the only physical part of that was just the buzzers. You know, oh, and, the buzzers. And figuring out the buzzers. Wheel of Fortune, The mm. Price is Right, both have these large wheels. <laughs> <laughs> How heavy are those wheels, uh, maybe in comparison to each other? And what does it feel like to spin that wheel oh, on Wheel it of Fortune? Was, I, I, just the happiness of being in that day at the studio. Um, so for Wheel of Fortune, it may have changed since then. But what I was told is you lean as far as you can to the right you pick a peg, you sort of wrap your fist around it, and you pull it towards you until it's right in front of your body. And it's a pull then push, pull then push. So one of the things happened with Wheel of Fortune, I was in the last one of the last seasons where you could actively be on more than one show. I won my show, was able to come back for a second time. They had a Friday finals format going on. So I taped the Thursday and the Friday, and by the end of the show, I there's this massive red mark. I've been told <laughs> it weighs about two tons. I was lucky enough to have enough strength to get it around roughly about one time each revolution, which does help, and you can sort of gauge where you are. I had a spin. The only multiple letter was there was two L's. I got it for $3,500 apiece. I'm thinking, I'm 19 years old. Mm. We're going to take this 7,000 run, even though they had a wedge called jackpot, and had I spun it up, I would have been the record holder. But then bankrupt was two before. I thought, you don't want to risk that. So there was a lot of practice. There was a red mark on my hand, but I was like, again, occupational hazard, we're good. A Wheel of Fortune, you get to practice that multiple times. I was, I was wondering. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. Price is right. They basically take you up, and you just got to honk on that thing. And the best comparison I've ever heard is like pulling down a garage door. You need sort of that force. And I just wailed on that thing. And I thought, I know who I want to say hello to. And I still, ha I still had a full revolution of clapping, right? But it's, uh, you know, I got 80. I didn't get to spin again, which is fine. I, I, was, I was lucky enough to advance the showcase. But those are hard. And, you know, there is a rule in Wheel of Fortune called beating the house. You, oh, 5,000 is four wedges away. Uh, mm. Let me just do it. That's called beating the house. You have to give it like a good spin. Yeah. You can aim, but you can't, you know, I'm always impressed by the people on Price is Right who try to finesse it. <laughs> it's, uh, I talked to someone else about this. It's, it's the tacticalness of it, right? And the same thing, we had a buzzer on a show that I, I was on called uh, Brain Battle. Maybe that's the one I didn't mention. Yeah. And at that time, I was coaching Quizball. So it was a 
an interesting situation in that I interviewed on a Thursday and it was a live show. So they need four new people every day. They said, can you come Monday? No. Tuesday? Okay. And I took my buzzers home and I watched the show and I practiced. So I, I feel like I had a little bit of an upper hand. There is a round of me winning something like 400 to 100 and I genuinely feel bad, but you're like, well, you got to play the game the best you can, right? So, well, and in my case, uh, you know, uh, I I did quiz bowl growing up also, but yeah. I was, you know, I was uh, 30 when I was on uh, Jeopardy and didn't have ready access to buzzers, so I used a Parker ballpoint pen I'm, standing behind a wingback chair. That and that's what I hear for people that are once you eventually find out, not eventually, but if you're lucky enough to get that call to go on Jeopardy is try to simulate as best you yep. can. I heard Ken Jennings used to use that stackable ring toy that babies would use <laughs> yeah, yeah. just to have the width of that, right? Yep. Because it's not just the click, but it's also trying to figure out how big that signaling device is, right? Well, and and you know, to say nothing about the the various mental games uh did, right. did that, So here's did my that... here's my secret. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and I didn't know that it would have a uh, have an effect as I was doing it. But mm-hmm. when I was on Jeopardy, I held the buzzer behind my back. I don't think that's a bad idea, right? I, it's and, whatever you're most comfortable with. Yeah. I've heard people like leave it on the desk, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and I was holding, you know, I had one hand like I had one hand clamped over my other wrist, mm-hmm. and the idea in my my you know my uh, mind because I, I you know I had practiced with it but I'd never practiced like against other people. Yeah, that makes sense. Was that like a they couldn't see if I was flailing away on the buzzer? That's a good point. And B, it sort of kept my muscles under control, so I wasn't wasting any like wasn't wasting any any movement on anything else you know all i was doing and this was probably completely overthinking it but i filmed three shows and i had lunch between the first and the second show and, and that's a lot of people don't realize that wheel and jeopardy do multiple shows a day and and so and of course like i went from like being one of the guys uh you know in the in the contestant pool to sitting by myself at lunch having oh, just one uh, yeah. did you have to sit by yourself or just no one wanted to talk to you because that sounds so sad if <laughs> well, that's the case so. I, I think i wasn't allowed to i wasn't allowed to mingle with the with the contestants who are not yet on oh and i so, never thought about that but I did overhear people at the other table talking about why is he holding his hand behind his back? And I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to hold my hand behind my back the next game. We'll take another quick break now and then hear more from Ryan Vickers on Northwards from North Country Public Radio. Northwards on NCPR is supported by The Book Nook, an independent bookstore located on Broadway in Saranac Lake, on Facebook at SL Book Nook and by Lewis County Public Health, hosting a flu and COVID-19 vaccination clinic on Thursday, November 2nd, from 2 to 6 p.m. at the Lowville Firehouse. Details at lewiscountyny.gov. Back with Northwards and back with more of our interview with Ryan Vickers, the native of Cornwall, Ontario, has made a virtual career out of appearing on game shows, around a dozen in all in four countries. Today, you actually work on a game show. Yeah, I actually work for three game shows. <laughs> so um, the first one that I that I started working with is something called Reach for the Top, and that has been 
on various TV networks on and off over the years. And one of the, I'm the host and have been to the host since 2013. And I love it. I live vicariously through all the contestants because I played in high school and we never, we did okay, but never made it out of our league to the provincial championships. One of the greatest things I get to say is I have a position once held by Alex Trebek. And that's like a huge thing for me. <laughs> and, you know, honored. So I guess that means that when they reboot Classic Concentration in like 2045, I get that job. <laughs> and when Ken and Mayim are done, I'll get that in 2056. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but I do that. I work for a show uh, which is on Game TV, which is something similar to a game show network in Canada called Pop Wiz. And I'm the uh, creative consultant and also on-set judge for that, which is a great experience. And we it's a on-location show, so we travel around filming it in various communities in Canada. And I also work at Family Feud Canada. <laughs> and that came about uh, because I emailed the audience coordinator to see if there was any positions available last season and uh, there were and I got a spot that way and so I'm on my second season of doing that and I it's perfect I, I love uh, I work in the audience department so checking people in making sure they've um, they filled out there we're not going to spoil the results we won't yell answers until we're told to yell answers show me number two that kind <laughs> of thing um, and just getting them in the audience and Sometimes I'm called upon is like, oh, ask Ryan. He'll know this obscure fact about Family Feud and invariably, <laughs> usually, I mean, I could I could hold it in, but I, I, I like to think that I know a little bit about game shows, but I love it. And I get to see a comedy show four times a day, three or four days a week. Um, and we have such wonderful families. It airs on the CBC in Canada. And so for our version, Family Feud Canada, they really work hard to get families from across Canada. We cover almost every province and territory at least once in a season. And these people are having the times of their lives. And I'm, I I love being there. You, I walk half an hour a day to take public transit down to Toronto. I live north of Toronto nowadays. And you can't wipe the grin off my face. I get in. I get everything set up. I put my name tag on. I get my uh, crew badge on and everything. It's just it's a pleasure to be there. It really is. Lots of clapping, lots and lots and lots of clapping. You're so. saying before we uh, before you got rolling, uh, occupational hazard. You start getting open wounds on your yeah, hands. Yeah, it's that's uh, I, I, but I have no shame in that. That's okay. <laughs> that's uh, you know, you put some some eucalyptus lotion or whatever. Uh, have you thought of like a, a soccer goalie gloves? So it's funny that actually got suggested when I signed on. I guess for the second season, we're on our fifth season. I I've been it for the last two. People like, you're going to bring gloves this year. I was like, but that muffles the sound. <laughs> so a lot of good answers. It's up there. Jerry, our host, Jerry D, is a comedian, and he's wonderful at what he does. And, uh, yeah, it's it's just an absolute pleasure. And I think because I have that enthusiasm along with the rest of the staff, the audience feeds into that as well. So I, I, I was trying to wrap my head around this. So you, you've done these – You've been on these nine television game mm-hmm. shows and a couple of podcasts and a yeah. radio game show. Uh, you've worked on the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, you've worked on the Pan Am Games. Yep. Uh, the World University Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably some things that I, I, I don't know about. Um, <laughs> FIFA in Toronto 12 years ago. Uh, so yes. good and, times. So. And the World Cup is coming up. Uh, that is circled for 2026. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I think about you and then I think about, you know, somebody like, Dick Cavett or something, yes. you know, and and I wonder, are you on the verge of of being famous for being famous? <laughs> <laughs> I have been very flattered. There has been a couple times uh, this year. Um, one of the things I do in Pop Wiz is give the contestant briefing. Just a reminder: here are the rules. Uh, 
So some of you may be familiar, some of you are not. I want you to know all the rules so we're even keel. If you've got questions, it's time to ask. If you think of something, let us know. We want to make sure everyone's – no one gets an advantage, but everyone's on the same level playing field. And we were standing – it was the first episode of season two we were taping. And all of a sudden, this lady in her late 20s, early 30s, Mr. Vickers. <laughs> Hi. Reach for the top, right? And I'm working on a completely different show. And so the the joke was our host, the entire season, we're feeling, Mr. Vickers, we have a question. And the whole season, it became a running gag. But so I guess to a point of that, I was really flattered. We had an audience member come to Family Feud last year who had seen my work on a game show documentary. And I was truly flattered. So it's very, like, low-key. Um you know, I, I will now put out my candidacy for Dancing with the Stars Canada if it ever comes up. <laughs> That's fine. Um, and, the, and the producers are listening to this particular show. A hundred percent. No doubt in my mind. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Go ahead. After having all these experiences, do you worry that someday it'll get less special the more you do? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I have been lucky to have so many different experiences. And and I think something like Family Feud Canada, people are like, oh, you show up, you you know, you go and have fun. I was like, but this is what I love. And every day there's new families and new questions and new audience members. And we have we have a, a gentleman, uh, shout out to Brock, who I think by the end of the season will be just shy of seeing 200 episodes taped. And he <laughs> just loves the show. And we, we're lovely to have, have him. Um I don't think so. I, I hope that game shows never go away. They do ebb and flow. And it may be, you know, 10 years from now, there's limited game shows on again. But I'm just as happy. Um, I've been MC for weddings and we've <laughs> built game shows into it. My friend's wedding about 15 years ago in Moncton, New Brunswick. We played Price is Right for her husband-to-be's G.I. Joe's. <laughs> and then we played we played Family Feud. And Mitch, honestly, that was one of the funniest things that ever happened when I've done sort of these game show events. And we were down. We set it up. We we modified the rules because there's 100 people and I'm running around with a microphone like I'm a talk show host. I guess, you know, old school Donahue, that kind of thing. <laughs> and the question was, name something specific that the couple likes about their apartment. The one side I'd struck out. And basically, we had two specific captains and the 12-year-old was captain on the one side. And I hear the specific answer was the washer dryer. I was like, this is great. This kid is going to get it right. He's going to be the hero of the wedding. And I say, okay, for the steal and the win, because they're all questions about the married couple. What's your answer? Ryan, it's got to be the bed. And the whole place, which was a lot of, <laughs> uh, not a lot of, you know, it was more like 30 and ups. Right. Just howls. And I thought, well, I never thought I'd say this. Show me the bed. <laughs> it wasn't there. But it's just like, that's, that's 15 years ago and it's ever etched in my memory. So game shows have this wonderfulness of, Having bringing people together, my my sister's a college professor in Northern Ontario. She brought me in to talk about game shows as a therapeutic recreational tool. Only two people in that room knew Family Feud before I got in there, but within five minutes, that's why the format works because it's so easy to catch on. It's not what the right answer is; is what people think the right answer is. So, it's interesting. You know, we we were talking about you know the the Price is Right as uh, as something you watched when you were sick and home at mm -hmm. eleven o'clock in the morning or. Yeah. 
10 central. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Uh, but I have to think, uh, you know, for, for people who are feeling, uh, you know, depressed or bummed out or, or you know, going through things, uh, watching people on a game show is not a bad way to, uh, to, to help your mood a little bit. Well, and, that's, and then there's the happiness of it. Yeah, I get it that some people get out of their game show experiences. It's maybe not what came out of it. But you might as well have fun with it, see how it goes, and you'll have a memory for life. And I'm lucky enough to have multiple memories for life, which I know is not all the case for everyone. And I feel very, very uh, gracious I've had that opportunity. But it's true. You can't – I can sit for probably hours, especially now with YouTube, and just watch compilations of clips. And you know, I, some days when I have a bad day, I'll pop on social media. Give me your funniest game show clip. Right. And and one that sticks out, there is a show called it was a most MXC that was on Spike TV and it was a dub of a Japanese format, but they dubbed in English. And it's a lot of people falling off. Imagine America's Funniest Home Videos as a game show, kind of like a wipeout (laughs) when they have the big red balls and things like that. Anyway, and this lady, she has to do a math problem while she's on this little mini roller coaster. But if you get it wrong, you get dumped in a pool full of mud. It was just, it was, you know, water with that mud That sounds like on, a Japanese so. game show. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and she didn't hold on tight. And you just watch her come to this coaster and it hits the brakes. Flump. She just falls in the pool. And I can watch that for days. And I'm not, I hope that I'm laughing with the person and not at the person. That's what I tell people. I said, we're all laughing with you. There's a lot of people. I've talked to people that are French first language. They're like, no way would I ever go on a game show, let alone in French. Because I'm not that, you know, or second language teachers, I should say, I'm not that confident. I'm like, well, you've got to try these things. And I have memories for life. And it was a great experience to go. That was a great time. But the best part of that was going with my dad to spend 10 days in France. And I think as adults, we don't travel enough with our parents. And, you, you know, it's been 10 years, but we look on that trip fondly. Right? Yeah, so. That's great. Well, Ryan Vickers, it's been really just a uh, a delight to uh, to kind of vicariously experience these uh, these game shows and these trips around the world with you. Thank you so much, Mitch. I appreciate the opportunity. Ryan Vickers grew up just outside Cornwall in Ingleside, Ontario. Over the years, he has appeared on a total of nine TV game shows in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and France, along with a radio game show and a couple of game shows done in podcast form. He now lives outside Toronto and works on three game shows, including the Canadian edition of Family Feud. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of Northwards, a Mark Goodson, Bill Todman production. Just kidding. We are produced at the studios of North Country Public Radio at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. Digital oversight of this show comes from Ethan Shanty and Bill Hanel. Caitlin Kelly does our social media. Doyle Dean shoots video. Our theme music is by the Whitmore Jazz Trio of Plattsburgh. And I am Mitch Tyke, your humble host and producer. Thanks so much for listening. Here and Now is next on NCPR, followed by Science Friday and the Beat Authority. Visit us at ncpr.org slash northwards and have a great weekend.